Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The Crusades involved three civilizations, Latin Christendom, Byzantium, and Islam. The weakest and poorest of the three was Latin Christendom, Western Europe. It had emerged after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. By the 11th century, it was divided into numerous petty kingdoms and lordships, all of which were governed by warrior aristocrats. The only institution found everywhere and could thus serve as a source of shared identity was the church, which used Latin as a common language and was headed by the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, whose authority, while ill-defined, was universally accepted as final in all spiritual matters. The oldest of the three civilizations was Byzantium. It was the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which had continued after the imperial collapse in the west. At its height, ruling the Balkans, southern Italy, Sicily, Greece, Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa, Byzantium remained a centralized state ruled by the emperors from their magnificent capital of Constantinople. Byzantium was politically Roman, culturally and linguistically Greek, and religiously Christian, but of a kind that was diverging sharply from that of Western Europe. In 1054, the Byzantine and Latin churches split openly and bitterly in the Great Schism. By far the most powerful, wealthy, and sophisticated civilization was Islam. In the 7th century, the successors of the Prophet Muhammad erupted out of Arabia and embarked on a spectacular career of conquest. The warriors of Islam were inspired by the doctrine of jihad, which imposed a sacred duty on them to conquer the Dar al-Harb, the world outside the true faith. By the 11th century, Islam encompassed a vast realm, stretching from Spain to the borders of China and from Sudan to the depths of the Eurasian steppes. During its heyday, the Muslim conquest had reached Europe. In the 9th century, Muslim forces conquered Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, and the Balearic Islands. The powerful Aglabid emirs of Tunisia and Sicily went on to attack southern Italy. In 847, Muslim warriors burned St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Afterward, they established bases on the Garigliano River, just 100 kilometers from the seat of Latin Christendom, and forced the popes to pay them tribute. Other Muslims lodged themselves in southern France. Today, Saint-Tropez is one of the beauty spots of the French Riviera, a playground for the jet set and a port of call for super yachts. In the 10th century, Saint-Tropez harbored the galleys of Muslim corsairs, who raided Christian coasts far and wide, pillaging settlements and taking captives to be sold in the teeming slave markets of the Maghrib, Muslim North Africa. It was Spain that saw the most spectacular and longest-lasting of all Muslim conquests. In 711, an army of Arab and Berber soldiers crossed the narrow straits separating Africa from Europe, Nearby Gibraltar is named after the Muslim general Tariq ibn Ziyad. They conquered all of Iberia, save for a handful of beleaguered Christian enclaves in the northern mountains of the peninsula. Al-Andalus, Muslim-ruled Spain, 
became one of the brightest jewels of the Islamic world. In 732, a Muslim army crossed the Pyrenees and raided deep into France. It was defeated outside Poitiers by the Frankish warlord Charles Martel. The victory at Poitiers halted Muslim expansion beyond Iberia, but Al-Andalus remained a dangerous threat. In the 10th century, Muslim armies assailed the petty Christian kingdoms of northern Spain and sacked the shrine of St. James of Compostela. In the end, though, Europe was simply too poor, too primitive, and too remote for the rulers of Islam to devote the time, energy, and resources required for its complete conquest, particularly when wealthier and more advanced parts of the world still remained. Nevertheless, in the words of John France, one of the leading historians of the Crusades, these assaults embedded in Western consciousness a real fear of Islam as an alien, aggressive, and deeply threatening religion some sort of menacing paganism or monstrous perversion of Christianity whose success challenged the one true faith. Yet the main victim of the Islamic expansion was Byzantium. When the followers of Muhammad first burst out of the Arabian Peninsula after 632, they conquered all of the Byzantine provinces in the Middle East and North Africa. Muslim armies twice besieged Constantinople in 674 to 678 and 718. On both occasions, the Byzantines were only able to repulse them through the employment of a devastating secret weapon, Greek fire. Afterward, the Byzantine Empire managed to cling on to its core territories in Anatolia and the Balkans. In the 10th and 11th centuries, Byzantine power even revived driving back the Muslims into the Middle East. After 1050, the Byzantines faced a new threat, the Seljuk Turks. The Turks are one of the major protagonists in the story of the Crusades. We'll learn more about them later in this podcast. The Seljuks renewed the Muslim assault on Byzantium. In 1071, they defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Banzikert and captured the Emperor Romanus IV. In the years that followed, the Turks overran much of Anatolia, Byzantium's principal source of money and military manpower. During the 9th and 10th centuries, Western Europe grew stronger. The great kingdoms of England, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, today's Germany, slowly took shape. The Muslim outposts in France and Italy were destroyed. Adventurer knights from Normandy conquered Muslim Sicily. In Iberia, the Christians began the Reconquista, the long process of driving back the Muslims, which only concluded in 1492. At the same time, the popes began to assert their authority as spiritual leaders of Latin Christendom. The Byzantines looked to the stronger and more confident Western Europe for help against the revived Muslim threat represented by the Seljuk Turks. In 1074, in the wake of the disaster of Manzikert and the Turks' capture of Jerusalem, Pope Gregory VII planned to personally lead to the east an army of soldiers of Christ. Although Gregory's plans came to nothing, a principle had been established that it would be the popes who would inspire expeditions to the east. The event that would spark the First Crusade was a meeting in 1095 between Pope Urban II and ambassadors from the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenus. The Byzantine envoys asked Pope Urban to persuade European lords to fight in the imperial army. Urban, one of the most important of medieval pontiffs, 
transformed the simple request into an idea that had far-reaching and momentous consequences, nothing less than a Christian doctrine of holy war. Urban based this new doctrine on two existing concepts. One was the pilgrimage. Christians had long believed that a journey to a holy shrine was an act of penance for sins. A pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the most sacred place of all, was particularly special and efficacious. It served as penance for all of the sins that a person might have committed. Even after Muslims had conquered Jerusalem in 637, Christians continued to journey there. The year 1000, the millennium of the birth of Christ, had seen huge numbers of Latin Christians make the Jerusalem pilgrimage. 33 years later, on the millennium of Christ's passion, even larger numbers of pilgrims had set out for the East. Urban's second concept was sacred violence, which held that violence against non-Christians was not only permissible, but actually a positive and worthwhile act if done for and in the name of Christ. Pope Urban had first come up with the idea of sacred violence when he sought to help the Christians of Spain against the Muslims of Al-Andalus. In 1089, he wrote to some of the Spanish lords, offering the full remission of penance, normally attached to the Jerusalem pilgrimage if these lords fought to take the Muslim city of Tarragona. We beg all who may be going to Jerusalem or other places in penance and devotion that they should expend all that they have saved for their journey on the restoration of the city of Tarragona, so that with God's aid it may have a bishop and cathedral, and its people may be protected from the Saracens by a wall and forewall. To such people we promise all that was offered to them for going to more distant places. On November 27, 1095, at Clermont in central France, Pope Urban proclaimed a crusade for the first time. Merging the two concepts of pilgrimage and sacred violence, he appealed for a great expedition to set out to aid the Christians of the East and to retake Jerusalem from the infidels. According to the priest Fulker of Chartres, who participated in the First Crusade and wrote an important history of it, these were Urban's words. Freshly quickened by the divine correction, you must apply the strength of your righteousness to another matter which concerns you as well as God. For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them the aid which has often been promised them. For, as the most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them and have conquered the territory of Romania as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean and the Hellespont, which is called the Arm of St. George. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit them to continue thus for a while with impunity, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. I say this to those who are present. It is meant also for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. To anyone who went on the journey, the Pope offered full remission of sins. Urban II's appeal created, according to John France, a new path to heaven, salvation through slaughter. The Pope's call to crusade was met with an enthusiasm beyond all his expectations. 
what at the time was dubbed the expedition of the Christian people desiring to go to Jerusalem amounted to an army of some 60,000 fighting men as well as vast numbers of non-combatants from all groups of European society. The fighting corps of the army was provided by the European warrior nobility. Preoccupied by their struggles and rivalries, no kings took up the cross. The crusader host nevertheless enjoyed excellent leadership thanks to numerous talented and battle-hearted lords in its ranks. What motivated the crusaders? One view, prevalent since the Enlightenment, has been that the crusaders' expressions of piety, self-sacrifice, and love of God were mere window-dressing, concealing baser, more material motives. According to this view, in 11th century Europe, a combination of overpopulation, changes to inheritance customs, and poor harvests had created a horde of landless second sons. These well-armed, unruly young nobles represented a dangerous threat to the peace of Christendom. Urban II conceived of the crusade as a way for these warrior nobles to go to the east to plunder and carve out domains for themselves in Muslim lands. Forty years of research have demolished this view. The knights and lords who joined the crusade, scholars have discovered, were generally wealthy men who already possessed or stood to inherit considerable lands in Europe. Moreover, going on the crusade was an exorbitantly expensive proposition. Scores of charters from 1095 and 1096, a charter was a kind of medieval property deed or financial transaction record, show entire noble families going deeply into debt in order to equip their menfolk for the expedition. For the vast majority of those taking part, the crusade was hardly a profit-making venture. To discover and understand the crusaders' true motives, we need to take Pope Urban's words and their appeal seriously. The Pope offered four powerful reasons to take up the cross. The first reason was to act with Christian charity by rescuing fellow Christians from the Muslim threat. In the words of Jonathan Riley Smith, crusading was an act of love done for one's neighbor. The second reason was to return to Christian control, Jerusalem, and the other places made holy by the life of Christ. The armed pilgrimage to the east was therefore viewed by its participants not as a campaign of conquest, but one of restoration. The third reason was to fight in a godly cause for both spiritual and earthly rewards. European nobles pursued warfare as a way of life. Their domination of their societies was based on their capacity for violence. Pope Urban was giving nobles an opportunity to exercise violence for a sacred purpose. Moreover, if the expedition succeeded because of their efforts, they would receive a profound spiritual reward the forgiveness of all their sins. At the same time, Urban did not condemn the warrior's acquisition of glory and booty while on crusade. These were understood as rightful compensation for righteous action. The inextricable intertwining of the sacred and profane was expressed in the crusader's rallying cry during the key battle of Doraliam. Stand fast altogether, trusting in Christ and in the victory of the Holy Cross. Today, please God, you will all gain much booty. The fourth and final reason offered by the Pope was to strike back at the Muslims. Urban's rhetoric played on the hatred and fear of Islam that had become embedded in the culture of the European warrior class by centuries of Muslim attacks. 
Thus, European Christians were fired by religious enthusiasm to take up the cross and join the crusade. And this enthusiasm led to astonishing feats and spectacular triumphs. In an arduous three-year campaign, the army of pilgrims traversed more than 2,700 kilometers from Western Europe to Jerusalem. They marched through unknown, hostile country without sure sources of supplies. In numerous desperate battles and sieges, they defeated the forces of three of the greatest Muslim powers of the day, the Seljuk Turks of Anatolia, the Sultanate of Baghdad, and the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. Most miraculously of all, in the eyes of the pilgrims, they succeeded in their ultimate goal. On July 15, 1099, they captured Jerusalem itself. The religious enthusiasm of the first crusaders had its dark side. While on their way to join the crusader army, several contingents of warriors attacked, plundered, and destroyed Jewish communities in western Germany. These knights and lords seem to have regarded the Jews as enemies of God, just like the Muslims, and considered their destruction as part of Urban's plan. When Jerusalem fell, the Crusaders carried out a dreadful massacre of its Muslim and Jewish inhabitants. This massacre, too, was seen as part of the pilgrimage's mission. In a vivid description of this terrible event, a priest on the Crusade rejoiced in the bloodshed. So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the temple and porch of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees and bridle reins. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers, since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. The city was filled with corpses and blood. After the taking of Jerusalem, most of the survivors of the First Crusade, having fulfilled their pilgrimage, returned to Europe but a few remained behind to establish European-ruled realms in Palestine and Syria. There were four of these crusader states, the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli, and the kingdom of Jerusalem. These states were often collectively called Outremer, overseas in French. They were greatly unequal in power and importance, straddling the headwaters of the Euphrates, remote, landlocked, and settled by very few crusaders, Edessa was the weakest of the four. Tripoli was also a minor state, amounting to little more than the coastal strip around the great port city of Tripoli itself. The Principality of Antioch was more powerful and long contested the control of northern Syria. The city of Antioch had been a great metropolis of the ancient world. In the 11th century, it still had a population of over 40,000. But Antioch often faced not just Muslim, but also Byzantine and Armenian hostility. The strongest and most important of the Crusader states was Jerusalem. From north to south, the Kingdom of Jerusalem extended from Beirut to the fortress of Gaza on the frontiers of Egypt. The heart of the kingdom was of course Jerusalem, with its sacred places, foremost among them the Church of the Holy Sepulchre built on the sites of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and the Temple of the Lord, formerly the Muslim shrine of the Dome of the Rock. Yet Jerusalem was largely a court city and a sacred center. Its physical extent was modest, and its inhabitants numbered just 10,000. Even when swelled by the thousands of pilgrims who visited each year, this population was far smaller than the crusader metropolises of Antioch, Tripoli, and Acre. To the west of the holy city spread the coastal plain of Palestine. The plain was densely inhabited and heavily farmed. 
one of the most important crops was sugarcane, which the Jerusalemites exported to Europe for a handsome profit. The plain was thickly carpeted by rural settlements and latticed by roads that carried a constant traffic of traders and pilgrims. Along the shore of the Mediterranean was a chain of port cities, Sidon, Tyre, Haifa, Jaffa, and above all, Acre. Situated on the finest harbor of the Palestinian coast, Acre was the Kingdom of Jerusalem's chief port and commercial emporium. Crammed into a peninsula jutting out into the sea, the city was overcrowded and polluted. In the 1180s, the Spanish Muslim traveler Ibn Jubair visited Acre and was repulsed by its filthiness. Yet the city was a vital node linking Europe with the Silk Road trade. Its streets hummed with commerce and industry. During the sailing season, its great harbor was crammed with round ships. Even in times of war, business hardly slackened, as Muslim merchants continued to stream in and out of Acre's gates. The Kingdom of Jerusalem's eastern frontier generally ran along the Jordan River, but south of the Dead Sea, the great fiefdom of Outre-Jordan reached far to the east, into the pale hills of Moab. Outre-Jordan's mighty castles of Montréal and Kerak acted as buttresses against Muslim assault. These castles also allowed the lords of Outre-Jordan to raid the vital caravan routes connecting Egypt and Syria. A long-standing view of the Crusader states, and one that remains widespread even now, was that they were European colonies planted in the middle of the Muslim world. Thus, their societies were characterized by a small stratum of Christian Crusader conquerors ruling over a vastly larger and heavily oppressed population of Muslim peasants. But recent research has shown that this view seems derived from and is much more applicable to 19th and 20th century European imperialism than to the situation actually pertaining in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. At the arrival of the First Crusade, the populations of Syria and Palestine were still largely made up of native Christians. The Muslim conquests of the 7th century had not been accompanied by the imposition of mass conversion. Although more heavily taxed by their Muslim rulers, native Christians were permitted to keep their religion. So while many natives did convert to Islam, most did not. The Crusader states were therefore home to Christians belonging to a dizzying variety of Eastern denominations. Greek Orthodox, who often spoke Arabic, Jacobites, Armenians, Copts, Nestorians, Maronites, and Ethiopians. These Eastern Christians willingly transferred their political allegiances to the Crusader newcomers. Furthermore, during the 12th century, a constant stream of Europeans came to settle in Outremer. Beginning in the 1990s, archaeological breakthroughs have provided compelling evidence that European settlement in the Crusader states was far more extensive and involved far larger numbers of people than once believed. The settlement effort began during the earliest days of the Crusader states. In 1100, Duke Godfrey, first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, granted a huge swath of land north of the city to the monks of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The grant included 21 villages for the settlement of soldiers of the First Crusade who had decided to remain in Utremer. By the middle of the 12th century, the largest of these villages, Magna Mahomera, had a population of 600, the result of both natural growth and the arrival of newcomers from Europe. 
according to the Israeli geographer Ronnie Ellenblum, some 235 European rural settlements have been identified in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Although always remaining a small slice of the population, European immigrants represented an important source of support for Jerusalem's kings. It appears then that the population of the Kingdom of Jerusalem was significantly, perhaps even majority, Christian. Moreover, the various Christian communities tolerated and cooperated with each other to a very high degree. We shouldn't mistake the Crusader states for a 21st century religious and cultural melting pot. Rather, a situation of rough toleration existed in which the Christian denominations agreed not to make much of their doctrinal differences and just rub along together. In such an environment, the European settlers were able to integrate themselves with the native Eastern Christians. One important vehicle of integration was intermarriage, which began right at the top. King Baldwin II of Jerusalem married an Armenian princess, Morphia of Melitene. Within a generation or two of coming to the East, most European settler families would have been mixed race. In addition, European settlers adopted the dress, diet, and habits of the native inhabitants of Uchimur. The result was the creation of a new culture that mixed Western European values, practices, and customs with local ones. As Fulker of Chartres puts it, We, who are Westerners, have now become Easterners. We have already forgotten the places of our birth. Already, these are unknown to many of us or not mentioned anymore. Some have taken wives, not only of their own people, but Syrians or Armenians or even Saracens, who have obtained the grace of baptism. People use the eloquence and idioms of diverse languages in conversing back and forth. Words of different languages have become common property, known to each nationality, and mutual faith unites those who are ignorant of their descent. He who was born a stranger is now as one born here. He who was born an alien has become as a native. European pilgrims who visited the kingdom of Jerusalem immediately noticed the profound changes in the settlers. In fact, these visitors feared that by going native, particularly intermarrying with the locals, the settlers were becoming corrupted by the decadent Middle East. Western Europeans took to calling the European settlers of the Crusader states Pulani or Pulain, meaning colts, which possibly referred to the product of a mixed marriage. As for the Muslims of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, they appeared to have largely accepted Christian rule. They were mostly peasants who were not much concerned with the religion of their lords, so long as they were left to fend for themselves. The Christian kings and lords of Jerusalem allowed the Muslims to keep their religion and run their communities as they saw fit, so long as they paid rent and taxes. From the foundation of the Christian Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1099 to the Battle of Hattin in 1187, there appeared to have been only a single instance of a large-scale Muslim uprising against Christian rule. In 1113, following a heavy defeat suffered by the army of Jerusalem at the hands of the forces of the Sultan of Baghdad, but this insurrection was put down and normal relations restored. Ibn Jubair, the Spanish Muslim traveler who visited Jerusalem in the 1180s, was appalled to observe that the local Muslim peasants enjoyed a relaxed and respectful relationship with their Christian overlords. I'd like to pause for a moment and just make a note concerning terminology. The Byzantines and Muslims called the European Christians of Utremer, regardless of actual European ethnic origin, Franks. 
in Arabic, Firanji, or Ifranji. We'll follow their practice and call all European Christians of the Crusader states Franks. The success of the First Crusade and the creation of the Crusader states embedded crusading in the consciousness of Latin Christendom. The persistent importance of crusading was most clearly manifested by the birth and spectacular rise of the military orders of the temple and the hospital. Today, the hospitallers, and especially the Templars, are shrouded by an almost impenetrable fog of half-truths, myths, and outright fabrications. They've become fodder for hordes of hack writers and holy grail conspiracists. In reality, the hospitallers and Templars were knight monks, fighting men who swore to defend the crusader states against the infidel, and who also subjected themselves to the monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The Templars traced their origins to the second decade of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, when a band of nine pious knights, led by Hugh de Payen and Godfrey de Saint-Omer, committed themselves to protecting pilgrims traveling the dangerous, bandit-infested roads between the Palestinian coast and the city of Jerusalem. In 1119, the King of Jerusalem granted them quarters in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which the Crusaders believed was the site of the biblical Temple of Solomon. This grant gave the knights their collective name, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. The Fraternal Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem had been founded in the 11th century by Italian merchants. The order's initial purpose was to provide hospitality to pilgrims at its great hospital in Jerusalem. Soon after the Crusaders captured Jerusalem, the hospital began to fund and take part in military activities. By 1136 at the latest, the Hospitallers had made the transition to a fully-fledged fighting order. The Templars and Hospitallers immediately gained enormous prestige and fame. We could almost think of them as the celebrities of the 12th century. They also became enormously wealthy. All over Christendom, kings, princes, lords, and even common folk rushed to bequeath land and riches to the knight monks. The two orders both came to possess enormous estates across Europe. The order's land holdings have left their marks on the cityscapes of Europe's great capitals. In London, the temple, the center of the English legal profession, is named after the church built in 1185 by the Templars. The original temple church itself is round, in imitation of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Similarly, in Paris, the Rue du Temple, which runs through the chic Marais neighborhood, was originally the main thoroughfare of the Quartier du Temple, the former domain of the Templars in the city. The ascendancy of the Hospitallers and Templars was confirmed by their acquisition of papal immunity, which meant that they obeyed not the secular rulers of the Crusader states, but the Pope. In effect, the orders became independent states within states. As we'll see, the armies and castles of the temple and the hospital were critical to the defense of Outremer. From our present-day perspective, and knowing the ultimate failure of the Crusades, the Crusader states seem like isolated and beleaguered European outposts strung along the Mediterranean shore. But for medieval Europeans, they were the earth on which Christ had walked, the homelands of Christianity now restored to the faithful. The Crusader states were the Holy Land, and the Holy Land needed to be defended against determined and deadly enemies.